0: You're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off. Say hello to my little friend. To infinity and beyond. Like tears
1: in rain. On Wednesdays we were pink. I love the smell of Maypuff in the morning.
0: Here's looking at you, kid. You talking to me? You're going to need a bigger boat. You'll always have Paris. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Films and Friends. My name's Josh. I am joined as ever by Tobias. Hello. I'm well and truly back. And we are doing a very slightly less socially distanced podcast this week, because we're at least all in the same city, and we are joined by Lily. Hi. So, Lily, welcome onto the
1: show. It's nice to have you. I remember we Thank spoke you. about this months ago. You said you were interested, <laughs> and we said, well, we'll get this sorted, and we, we did, eventually. <laughs> so, to let the people know who you are, what's your occupation, what do you do, and how do you know us?
2: Yeah, so I'm a freelance music journalist here in Manchester, um, and I know you guys because I used to work with you both at the Mancunian.
1: Exactly, we'd uh, hang out in the office, chat about paper, chat about life. Um, Mm It was uh, good good times. I I miss the office. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Yeah, me too. (laughs)
0: So, um, as we've been doing recently with our sort of tradition of um, how we do sort of the, the sort of the quarantine editions of these podcasts uh, we usually try to start with a film with all watched recently that we particularly enjoyed as i've sprung that on you both a little bit i'll go first and i think my choice for the film i've seen in the last seven days which i enjoyed the most is probably the royal tenenbaums and as much as i do go on about wes anderson to an exorbitant extent that's probably irritating to every single listener we have uh I've always been like very resolute in saying that The Grand Budapest Hotel is my favourite Wes Anderson film, and having watched The Royal Tenenbaums, which is the last one I needed to watch for I've completed watching all of them, now I'm rethinking it. I'm not going to lie. Oof. It's a tough one.
1: And um, Lily, have you seen anything recently, or do you want me to go first?
2: Um, I'm just trying to think what I've I've been watching so much that everything's just kind of blurred into one film. I, know um, I watched yeah, I watched Far From the Madding Ground um, the other day, and that was amazing. But it is one of my favourite films, so it's unsurprising that I would find it so great. Um, I love having really strong um, female characters but who are flawed um, in film and in literature. Uh, so I really enjoyed watching that the other day. It kept me entertained.
1: I've just looked that up. I, I've never actually heard of this film.
2: Oh, it was originally a book, a uh, 19th century. Book and it's amazing. Uh, it's got a great cast, and um, yeah, I was, a, I was a history student, so I'm always drawn to kind of period-based films. Um, but yeah, it's really good. I'd recommend it.
1: See, I need to get into more period pieces because it's one of the subgenres that I can't really get into. Like when Little Women came out, the film, I,
2: mm.
1: I was just completely like, well, I'm sure that the audience who love this will love it, but I have zero interest. And I don't know, it's something that I now have time to get into, so I probably should.
2: Yeah, I would definitely recommend it. I mean, I'm such a sucker for reading kind of a really good classic book and then being completely drawn into the film adaptations and the TV adaptations. Um, So, yeah, I mean, even if you start from the literature and then move on to the movies or vice versa, it's always worth kind of engaging with our cultural history through literature in that way.
0: I'm trying to think what my opinion of period pieces is. I haven't really seen that many of them. When I think about it, I had a quick cursory Google, and the only one I can see in sort of the top results that I have seen is the favourite, which isn't really based on a book. But I did actually quite enjoy the favourite. I do. I'm not really that big into some of the kind of period stuff. Like I've never bothered watching Downton Abbey because I'm not really sure it's the kind of thing that would appeal to me. (laughs) But I think maybe yeah, maybe period films should be my next sort of genre to conquer. Yeah,
2: Yeah. definitely.
1: See, there must be some kind of link between having more appreciation for period pieces and English A-levels because (laughs) I'm sure you read a lot of these books that are classics of the period drama era, right?
2: Yeah, although you say that. I did gothic literature when I did my A-levels and I can't deal with horror films and you would think that gothic, you know, stemming on from that form of literature horror in a movie would, would be a natural progression but unfortunately it just never it never clicked with me um so i'm I'm not i'm not sure i wish i was investor. yeah Yeah, exactly yeah
1: i growing up in spain and doing the spanish baccalaureate we didn't do any english literature i never read Hmm. um i don't know dorian gray or uh, great gatsby nothing all of these books everyone has as kind of common knowledge i've never read um so I, I, I was a bit lost when watching the film that I watched recently, which was um, Midnight in Paris.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And yes, director is Woody Allen. That That's a you know dodgy chap within itself. But the film, the film itself, starring Owen Wilson, who I usually think he's a bumbling idiot, plays a little bit of a bumbling idiot in this film. <laughs> and it, how, how do you describe it? Essentially, he's, he's an author. He travels to Paris where he's going to get married with his fiancée, and he's kind of not sure about the marriage, not sure where his book is going, kind of in a bit of a rut. And one night he decides to walk the streets of Paris, which he thinks is the most romantic and idyllic thing he can do. He sits on a uh, steps of a church. An old-timey car drives past, and then someone tells him, get in, get in. He gets to the car, gets out of the car, at this bar and he's instantly taken back to the 1920s and he's surrounded he meets um, Hemingway and Dali and all sorts of other writers and artists from that era so it's kind of very much the the soft boy dream film (laughs) 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 like I was watching it I was like yeah, I, I, I bet, although we, we, we toe the line between soft boy and non-soft boy, I mean, this was like, hardcore soft boys would watch this and go, this, this is my dream, man. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a fully, wholly enjoyable film. Like, I, I really enjoyed it.
2: I'll have to give it a watch.
0: You did message me just after finishing it saying, have I ever seen it? If not, you, it's the kind of film you'll love.
1: There was something about it, and no, I'm not calling you a massive soft boy, (laughs) 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 but no, there was something about it that was like, there's something about the humor and the way it all blends together that said just Josh Sandy, so you need to watch that one.
0: Well, I'll be sure to check it out at some point. And to go from things I may possibly like to things that Lily does actually like. So the first question <laughs> we like to ask people on the podcast is uh, what kind of films, uh, kind of genres, directors do you particularly like?
2: Well, my friends ridicule me for having a very old soul. Um, the stuff that I absolutely adore is, is old. <laughs> We're looking at kind of Catherine Hepburn, Cary Grant, Doris Day, kind of old classics. Um, I remember watching the Philadelphia story when I was younger with my mum and just being absolutely engrossed in kind of Catherine Hepburn's mannerisms and her humour and the great scripts of that era um and so I find myself kind of increasingly engaged the older I get in kind of the stuff I used to watch when I was very young that I was aware of being on in the background um so stuff like that and anything with a good soundtrack but that's perhaps to be expected um films like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood which was released quite recently uh before pre-pandemic (laughs) <laughs> the world that used to exist. Um, I was just obsessed with that soundtrack um, and kind of that era of music. So it really um, drew me into into the movie. Um, so stuff like that, yeah. I'm I'm quite an old lady, really. Um, <laughs> now that I think about it. Well,
1: The fact that you enjoyed Once Upon a Time in Hollywood so much because you are a fan of that golden era of Hollywood... Mm is, I think, why that film was so big with critics.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because I think you'll find that so many critics being classically trained in cinema, having started with whatever old tiny films the, uh, they, they had to watch at film school and then work their way through the years, they would mm-hmm. have gained an appreciation for that era where it, this film speaks to them. Yeah. And yeah I, I that i definitely that was the one aspect of the film that I did think you know what I can appreciate this and it was that kind of love letter to the golden age
2: yeah I think when I read critics' responses to movies i often I often have to take them with a pinch of salt being a critic myself you know I am not known for being a particularly nice reviewer so <laughs> um so whenever I read a review of you know of what, the wider arts outside of music I always think am I reading the work of of somebody like me um, <laughs> so I try and give a movie a chance but when I went to see Once Upon a time in Hollywood um, I just thought it was a masterpiece um, which again I don't I'm not frequently very complimentary <laughs> um, and and I yeah I thought it was absolutely brilliant I, I could watch that film a hundred times and still be entertained.
0: I think there's something sort of very specific you mentioned there, which I don't think I've really considered before with like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and especially to do with sort of films that focus on like a different era. I think your enjoyment of the film sort of maybe is almost dependent on how much you want to sort of dive into that sort of sort of dive into that time period in a sense. Because for me, like, a lot of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I thought was quite dull and boring, because it did go on a bit. But I suppose if you really buy into that kind of, um, if you buy into that environment or that era, then you can watch it for hours. Like, for me, like I've been watching quite a lot of um, sort of early 90s, films recently mm. and stuff like um, Boys in the Hood and Menace to Society and stuff and I think like those films like they're sort of what it was like living in like sort of, uh, sort of uh, de- deprived areas in uh, LA in the early sort of 90s I find that really interesting I could probably watch like a three and a half hour film all about that and probably yeah. would be alright with it whereas watching something about like watching Once Upon a Time in Hollywood it just didn't really do it for me because I'm not that bothered about sort of Hollywood's golden age
2: yeah Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it would make sense that we as humans are more attracted to the arts that we feel that we can most uh, relate to in a way. Um, I mean, my experience of the music industry in Manchester, you know, I'm very lucky in that my friendship group here is very eclectic in, in the industry, but fundamentally, they all listen to kind of the same kind of music. You know, we're all kind of Dylan fans and Beatles fans, and we all love like the 60s and 70s kind of golden age era that we've discussed. So a film like that that kind of really tugs on our own understanding of ourselves is obviously going to be more relatable than um, you know, than other work. Um, I don't know, it felt like a film that really kind of spoke to my soul a little bit, as, as far as my musical tastes went, anyway. So I felt like I had more of an affinity to it. Uh, whereas other Tarantino films I've enjoyed, but I haven't felt as engaged. Or engrossed in, in them as I did with uh, with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood.
0: Yeah, I think you touched on quite an interesting point there about sort of um, sort of the relatability of it. I'm not sure I would quite put the same thing onto what I was discussing. because my my uh, own experiences of uh, <laughs> living somewhere deprived in LA in the early 90s is is extraordinarily limited. But yeah, I think, of course. But I think there is definitely. I think that definitely is one of the things that can definitely enhance. How you would feel about a certain time period, whether or not you can relate to it or not. Like I imagine relating to it is probably even more intense than just sort of having a genuine interest in. Mm. Oh, actually, maybe that's maybe that's not it. Maybe it's the idea of th- there's two extremes of there's one where it's sort of really familiar to you and it sort of speaks to your soul, and on the other mm. side you have oh it's nothing like anything I've experienced in my life. Therefore, I find yeah. it really fascinating to see. And I think that's mm. probably some kind of horseshoe model of. So no, there's probably you there's probably quite a good article in there somewhere about the horseshoe model of um <laughs> relatability or something
2: probably yeah yeah, i mean it would it would make sense i mean in the arts, you know you know musicians, artists, you know film you know script writers, directors, everybody is you know constantly trying to market their work um and make it more sellable. Um, in a competitive environment so you know that is the crux isn't it what what makes um what makes art or films more relatable to an audience is Mm. it you know is it because it you know speaks to our soul is it because it's something that we are completely alien to and we want to be educated about uh uh, there's there's definitely kind of a magic formula in there somewhere but i'm not sure uh, i'm the right person to give it (laughs)
0: No, that's completely understandable. So, Toby, what's your um, what what's your era that sort of is is your sort of your your top era for a film to be set in for you to probably enjoy it?
1: See, I, I think the future, <laughs> the future, whether <laughs> dystopian or realistic or even utopic, is kind of where I enjoy my films the most. Mm-hmm. But what depiction of the future? Because of course you have. Current depictions of the future. I think the '80s had the most wild takes on the future, Mm. Mm. while some films went really over the top with how they presented the well, 2020s. um, Some of them were surprisingly accurate to an extent. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's stuff like *Akira*. The way it depicted it takes place in 2020 and after a global pandemic the olympic games in tokyo have been cancelled like that's exactly I mean, it was <laughs> kind of nuts to see the year unfold like akira and i was like well that's that's just terrifyingly accurate
2: <laughs> yeah
1: 80s yeah. sci-fi is where
0: it's at yeah yeah i think the 80s really did sort of really tap into that sort of ability of very kind of prescient stuff i think even even stuff like i mean blade Runner's has not quite come true but there are definitely elements of that you can see now and the same as like terminator so terminator 2 specifically really that's just that's actually early 90s i'd imagine but um yeah i think it's it, the 80s was really when they sort of really found that ability to sort of tap into what the sort of sort of 2020s would be like because if you look at like really old sci-fi like the 60s and stuff it's obviously just really mind-blowing like flying cars and everything whereas whereas th- th- some of them a lot of like especially kind of dystopian ones even though arguably there are still like flying cars and blade runner there are still elements of blade runner that are kind of kind of, kind of tr- not true perhaps but kind of like you can see them kind of reflected in some way in our current life, which is really weird when you watch them now and you sort of see a time flash up on the screen and you realise, oh yeah, that's actually in the past now, even though when they made it, that was really far in the future.
1: Yeah, it's kind of nuts how it, it all changes and, and you, you think, well, that's not how it unfolded. And then you watch a film and you're like, well, that's how it's actually kind of unfolding. And it's scary. Yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. And then you see depictions that we have now of the future. And you think, well, how close are we going to get to that? Because some people don't even want to look that far forward.
2: Yeah. No, I think I think as a population as well, well, I personally feel less engaged with the future, particularly at the moment. I don't really want to know. <laughs> I find it too stressful. Whereas there was this massive kind of, you know, even a political kind of um, mindset in the 80s about looking forward and about, kind of the world that we were creating and you know a very inward way of looking at the effect that humans are having I do think we have that now but I think the pandemic particularly has um, kind of stopped people from wanting to think about you know what might happen in the future uh, particularly from artistic point of view because you know we don't know (laughs) what's going on and we're a bit confused and lost at the moment as humans Um, so it'd be really interesting to see
1: I guess, I'd say that the mentality that people have right now could be comparable uh, to the Cold War. Yeah. Where it was uncertainty and the idea that, well, will we even all exist (laughs) five years from now? Hmm. Maybe we'll see a reflection of that in the coming years, because there's definitely been a shift. I mean, music is a lot more of an immediate medium when it comes Hmm. to reacting to global events. Mm. And there's already been a shift in the way musicians work and musicians think. Just yeah. looking at, um, if if I'm not mistaken, it's Charlie XCX that released an album that she worked on over the course of a month. Mm. So who knows? Who knows what filmmakers will start thinking about as yeah. as isolation grows long.
0: I think it could be I think that there'll be a definite kind of um sort of hunger in Hollywood in terms of like um, sort of mainstream audiences for probably quite light entertainment I think I think this is might this might be sort of, you might see a resurgence of kind of like more like adventure kind of films where it isn't like sort of high stakes life or death stuff it's just people just having a good time if that makes sense. I think Mm. that's probably the next... I think that might be the trend of the sort of 20s. I think it'll be very experimental, and I think it'll be a lot less bleak than perhaps quite a lot of the films of other decades.
2: Yeah.
1: The film that's been in the works for a while now is the Uncharted film, based on on the Uncharted games. And seeing as that's, again, a a bit more, not such huge scale, but more of a small-scale Indiana Jones type adventure film definitely there's definitely a place for that now in people's imaginations and I, I know yet yeah, there's a ton of films you put here Lily that you say you're interested in
2: mm-hmm. and
1: sorry your favorite sorry sorry my, my mm. bad um no, no. <laughs> but in the least favorite stuff it, it, it relates to what we're talking now you talk about sci-fi and is the bleakness of sci-fi what pushes you away from it or is it another reason perhaps
2: my my I have a younger brother and he he's absolutely loves sci-fi um but it was just never anything I felt engaged with or that I could relate to um I read a lot of sci-fi fiction um you know a lot of literature when I was younger but um and even to an extent I do now but for some reason there was just something about sci-fi movies I just I couldn't engage with uh, and I still struggle with now um yeah, I mean even even things um even things like the Marvel franchise, which I know is kind of branching out of sci fi or you know, cusping it. Um yeah, but more even things fiction. like Yeah, but even things like Marvel, I've never really been able to be invested in it. Um you know, I I, I you know I watched like the first couple of films, yeah. You know, I think I watched Iron Man a couple of times. But, you know, it's such an iconic uh, you know, franchise that Really, I feel like I should like, but I just can't, I can't seem to be able to grow attached to it at all. So I'm not sure what it is of the genre that I don't, I don't like, (laughs) but there's just something in there that I just grate against massively. Um, So I've got to a point now where I just sort of avoid it. Um, Yeah.
1: See, with sci-fi, what my kind of issue, well, I don't know, I, I an issue I used to have with sci-fi, at least, was that I grew up reading a lot of fiction and I mm. liked a lot of fantasy and fiction, stuff like Aragon
2: mm.
1: and and all that style of writing. I, I quite enjoyed. And then I went through uh, a little bit of a period where I just wanted to read non-fiction books. And I read some really interesting non-fiction books, not, not going to lie, but that when I returned, when I, when I got more of an inkling for fiction, I like science fiction, but science fiction that was harder on the science than it was on the fiction,
0: hmm.
1: if that makes any sense, which is yeah. why I found The Martian such an enjoyable book and a film as well, the film's actually quite enjoyable, is that it It at least explains a bit of the scientific process to you and presents it in a, in a plausible-ish way, and that's what I found best about it whereas when it goes really far into the, I don't know, stuff like Armageddon where it's just mm. fantasy with a sci-fi costume on, that's when <laughs> it gets a bit weird for me. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah I think there's definitely a um, sort of genre-wise blurring of the lines between like fantasy and sci-fi, because I think you would get a lot of people who would probably misguidedly say things like Star Wars is kind of science fiction and actually it really, really isn't. But I think people, and the same as like does Star Trek, maybe to a slightly lesser extent, might be slightly more science fiction-y than Star Wars, but slightly more, yes, slightly more science fiction sorry. And yeah, I think there's definitely a, I think the, the, the sort of what is science fiction has become a lot more diluted recently, mm. like especially like since like especially when you think since like the eighties. Whereas science fiction was a very very boxed in thing, if it's just like it was basically at that point it was effectively just like sort of predictions for the future with like a fairly kind of real with sort of a, a degree of realism. Whereas I think once you go past that realism to a ridiculous extent, like in Star Wars, that you sort of tend to err into fantasy. And to be mm. honest, like for me, I don't really like fantasy that much like i'm not a big lord of the rings fil- films fan I'm not, I'm not i'm not really that into star trek either and star wars i still haven't bothered watching the um new trilogy just because i have <laughs> absolutely no interest in it
1: yeah that's, that's kind of what gets me about star wars is that it it relegates itself to fantasy and, and it should i remember there was that con- controversy in the was it in the prequels where they tried Mm. to explain the Force in a science fiction way, and they said that it was actually literally microscopic energy creatures. Midichlorians.
0: Was that it? Yes, midichlorians.
1: (laughs) Yeah, see, it was that that I I saw, and I went, well, that's just trying to put the science fiction into it, and it's just not working.
2: Yeah.
0: Is it...
1: Sorry, go, go on, Josh.
0: No, I was gonna say it's um it's very telling that 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 definitely that when the original um Star Wars film came out the the first one in nineteen seventy seven it was sold as kind of like a space opera and it was um it's basically based on a um kurosawa film wasn't it I, I uh,
1: yeah it was a seven samurai right?
0: no it wasn't or, mm.
1: no,
0: no it was um is it somewhere in a castle. I'm gonna look it up now. I'm pretty sure it had something to do with um, because I think Seven Samurai isn't that what the there's a isn't that the one the western's based on?
1: Yes, I. Think oh, the Magnificent so, yes. Seven. That's it. That's the, the w- mm. that's
0: the one. That, um, uh, one the Seven Samurai's based on, and then the Star Wars one is Hidden Fortress.
1: There we go. That's the one.
0: Yeah, I think um, that yeah. Having said that, having when you realize that it was based on like kind of like a fantasy film obviously in uh Hidden Fortress you do realize that yeah it is a space opera it is the most apt thing for it and they try, they sort of, they sort of attempted to pivot it, as you said, towards science fiction, which doesn't really work. And I think that's probably another reason why. Maybe I haven't really considered it on like a sort of, uh, sort of, uh, sort of conscious level, but on a subconscious level, that's probably one of the other reasons why the prequels left me feeling quite cold. Was because mm-hmm. they aren't, kind come of the same, they aren't the same style as the films. I sort of. I, the, the original three that I really like they just feel like mm. kind of like imitations that aren't as good and just try and like shoehorn in sort of elements yeah. of science fiction
2: yeah no I completely agree I mean I really love I really love um, the original three Star Wars um, whether that's just because they were hurled at me at you know speed <laughs> from a young age um, or whether that's just you know a love of of kind of the structure of them and their style Um, whereas the, the, you know, prequels, um, I feel less, I know, less love towards. And then the new ones, I don't even think I've seen any of them, to be perfectly honest. It just felt like something that I wasn't, it felt like a cliquey group that I was not part of because I hadn't invested myself so much in the kind of Star Wars universe. Um, and I felt like, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't welcome as far as the the new (laughs) films were concerned because I didn't know, know enough. Um See,
1: that's the thing about the new films. It feels like it's made for those hardcore fans. Yet those hardcore fans do nothing but argue about how terrible the new films are.
2: Mm.
1: So it it really is a I don't know a, a whole world that I'm not not going to go into. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: But another genre you say you don't quite enjoy is a uh, horror, and you touched on, upon that before. Mm. What is it specifically about it that you don't enjoy?
2: Oh my god! I just I don't like. The idea that that my nerves are being frayed for entertainment. <laughs> I watched the um, the Blair Witch Project with my dad when I was about maybe fourteen or fifteen. I mean, that is no and uh, yeah, I was traumatized. <laughs> um, I watched. I, I you know I've always. I you know I can kind of cope with more gothic based horror. So things like Crimson Peak. I don't know if either of you've ever seen that. Yeah, the, that. Uh, yeah. um, I, I I kind of enjoy that I enjoy the themes I don't enjoy the being terrified all the time thing I mean it's kind of the same reason I don't really watch soaps a lot of my friends kind of watch soaps and stuff um and you know things like you know made in Chelsea and that kind of drama but um I always say the reason I don't watch them is because my life is dramatic and scary enough and <laughs> I don't need other people's drama to uh to deal with as well and it's kind of the same thing in horror like I don't you know, the world is a scary place. I'd rather not be reminded of uh, of all the other scary things that could be going on uh, that I don't know about. Uh, I'd much rather just deal with, with what I have in front of me. But maybe <laughs> I'm just a bit soft.
1: <laughs> no, no, that, that's totally understandable. Yeah, horror. It's It's interesting the relationship people have with horror because some people, like myself, find comfort in it. There's something mm. interesting about seeing the stories unfold and... How the medium can be pushed to tell new stories mm. whereas other people just don't want to be reminded about nasty stuff which is fair which is very mm. fair I mean I have seen some horror films where uh, they toe the line on some subjects or even cross a line where I go well actually that you know that, that was a step too far mm. and you're not you're not really presenting a story through horror anymore you're just kind of exploiting your audience with just borderline insane uh, f- filmmaking,
2: yeah
0: yeah, I think you make a quite a good point there, and I think that's I think we talked about it a bit last week is sort of like um the, the sort of dilution of horror maybe into sort of uh, very like sequel kind of like kind of like, basically like basically what it is it's like a kind of one-upmanship of uh, you made you made this film well i'm going to make something that's even more horrifying and then you end up to the point where you just end up with like kind of torture porn stuff and then you end up with six six editions of saw where they design increasingly disgusting ways for people to injure themselves or whatever but and i think that's definitely something that's been lost In horror a lot is that some of the best horror is doesn't rely on like really seeing horrific things it's all about kind of like implications and kind of like the sort of I think one of the things I want sort of horror kind of horror adjacent things I really like is stuff like some of the like black episodes like Black Mirror and stuff that aren't necessarily purely horror, but they have definitely have like elements of it in that definitely make you think. And one of the ones that's really, really kind of affected me actually, and the more I think about it, the more it kind of creeps me out, is there's an episode of Black Mirror. It's the it's episode one in season four, the USSS Callister.
1: Yeah, the mm-hmm. Star Trek
2: episode.
0: Yeah, and it's the bit at the end where the guy's like trapped in the game forever, and he just dies in real life. And yeah, that really like when you really think about that, it's pretty grim. <laughs>
1: Yeah, those implications are, are pretty horrifying. I mean, once it delves into existential horror, that's when I think films do it, Films or TV shows, in this case, do it best. Yeah. And it's, it's mm. that step beyond where it's, I don't even need to show you something horrible or even attempt to show you something horrible, just knowing that this is a possibility in, within a certain set of um, occurrences. Now that's horrifying.
0: Or the same as the one in um the White Christmas one, where you find out the guy going to be trapped in the snow globe, listening to so here it is, Merry. No, um, I wish it could be Christmas every day for something like thirteen thousand years, and like you don't really see any like it just ends then. But as you watch the credits roll, well, you just think about that and you think, Jesus Christ, that is that is a, that is that is a fate worse than death, isn't it?
1: Well, that's just solidarity with retail workers at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> It's just that just <laughs> listening to that song over and over for yeah thirteen thousand years twenty days yeah. I don't know it's the same thing isn't it in Thank a way, way <laughs> <laughs> oh dear and the last genre you say you don't enjoy and, and then we can move on to um more fond memories uh, you talk about <laughs> new musicals what, oh what my god
2: my pet hey um, so basically I mean I grew up on kind of the old in the commas, musicals, things like Calamity Jane and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, anything with Howard Keel in it, you know, I, you know, Sound of Music, kind of stuff like that. So I have a real affinity to kind of that style of uh, movie. So anything um, that strays into kind of like the more modern adaptations. I mean, dare I bring up Cats? I haven't actually yeah. seen it. But the very like concept that that they're like that, that these new kind of wishy-washy musicals are being kind of put on stage is one thing, but kind of being put into the movie sphere um, really stresses me out. <laughs> it really irritates me. Um, I just I don't like it. I don't. I can kind of deal with Chicago, but that is the that is the extent of it. I, I just absolutely despise them. <laughs>
0: What about Mamma Mia? I know how too much Tobias actually I despises love, that film.
2: I love ABBA with so much of my heart. Like, I, If I could be the fifth member of ABBA, I would be. Um, they wouldn't have me, but, you know, um, it would be nice. Um, <laughs> and I love Meryl Streep. I even love Pierce Brosnan sometimes. But the film was just... As far as movie production goes as in kind of the quality of the film, it was poor. I suppose if you love the music, then that's a different thing. But um, but I mean, yeah, the, as far the as... The audience yeah. of people
1: who look beyond the technical aspects of the film and, and the story yeah. beats, and they're just like... I want to see these songs put into a story and sing yeah. along to the songs.
2: If you love ABBA and you didn't make it to any of their shows in 1979, it's perfect. But <laughs> if you're looking for anything with a plot line, any kind of realism, any kind of decent singing from Pierce Brosnan, uh, bless yes. him. I do the, almost feel a bit bad. The way he does
1: red in it is oh. that... That is the one enjoyment I get out of that film is watching yeah, And King's I read I read
2: a really interesting interview um, ages ago where he said that he was really nervous. Like he told them that he couldn't sing. He was really nervous about doing it, but they were, you know, keen to have him in it. And he knew that he was shit basically. And and you know, and he uh, and he ended up doing it anyway. And I just feel so bad for him because every time <laughs> I watch the film I just think, Why? Why are you doing this to yourself? When you you hate it, we hate it. There's definitely people outside of the camera angle that hate it. Merrill's wondering where her career went wrong. Uh, you know, yeah. So Malamia is not is not a good uh, a good turning point, I think, in the uh, in the <laughs> musical direction. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and the musical I love though, a mo- I'd say it's a, yeah, it is a modern musical. Is um the
0: producers?
1: Have you seen it? I don't it?
2: think I've ever seen it. Oh,
1: the producers is. Brilliant.
0: It I was just, originally uh, sorry, go on. No no you can carry on Archie. I'll I'll tell you in a second. I'll oh, wait.
1: It was originally a film with Gene Wilder in it where mm. it it wasn't a musical, it was just a straight up comedy. And then Mel Brooks remade it. And <laughs> the plot is um Max Bialystock, Broadway producer, mm. makes terrible, terrible um he makes terrible uh, musicals. He he can't get any investment in return. He's awful. Mm-hmm. So then one day he realises, after hiring accountant Leo Bloom, that if they make the most terrible musical that they could ever make on purpose and actually get a lot of investment into it and make sure the show shuts on the first night, the insurance money will cover it and they will be rich. So mm-hmm. they scam old ladies... To get money to fund um, a musical by a Nazi um, called Springtime for Hitler. And they hire a very, very gay director to direct this musical. So it's the most backwards, absurd thing. And it's absolutely hilarious. And the songs are brilliant. It is genuinely such a funny uh, musical. that you have to watch it. I think you will
0: love it. I'll I, give it a watch. I'm really sorry to do this to you, Toby, but when we had this conversation on the podcast like last year, uh, when we finished the podcast, because my housemate was on the podcast at the same time, when mm. we finished the recording, we actually went home, we actually watched it together, and we both hated it.
1: <laughs> no, why did he hate it? Why?
0: <laughs> I thought, to be fair, you're right, the songs are really funny. The rest of it, I could do without. <laughs> well,
1: I, I'm not a fan of musicals. In general, so so the whole way people act, and I'm not saying the performances, but the way characters interact with each other in the world and the way their logic works, is quite. Yeah, I I, I know what you mean. It it, it can be quite
0: kind of jarring.
1: Uh, a jarring, yeah, jarring and putting. But I don't know. There was just something about it. It's just so damn funny that it. I couldn't really fault this musical. I really just loved it.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I think to be fair, I, I'm not the biggest musical fan. Having having said all that, I, and I, yeah, I did find the. Um, I think you probably got you're probably about eighty percent of the way there. The reasons why I didn't really like it that much because it really that kind of is kind of like that kind of stagey kind of like melodramatic acting. Obviously, you have to do on stage. When you convert it into a film, I guess I'm not really that used to it, and I think that probably is one of the reasons why it didn't quite gel with me as much as it probably could have but having said that though yeah the, the actual concept itself and the songs are really funny like it is it's is definitely a it's definitely an amusing film to watch i think just i didn't it didn't really gel with me particularly
1: Would you go i i'm gonna see have
2: it? to uh i'm gonna have to watch it now just to try and establish an opinion uh between you both um please do, yeah. please do report back. i'll give it a watch <laughs> i'll let i'll let you know what i, what I think
0: but yes, I would go and see it. If I could go and see it in like the actual theatre, I would probably go and watch it, actually, to be fair. I mean, it's brilliant. I, I saw it at the
1: Royal Exchange Theatre about mm. almost... Uh, it was a year and a half ago now. And it was, yeah, it was brilliant. Because, of course, it was the whole same story, same songs. But the Royal Exchange Theatre, for some reason, had a circular stage in the middle that mm. rotates. So it's ground yeah. level. And it rotates so having sparkling nazis um marching around this stage to um springtime for hitler Mm. and with gay hitler jumping around and and it just the the way they ran in between the crowd as well it was just it it was absurd it was like a fever dream in the best (laughs) way it was incredible (laughs) yeah i mean the
2: the theater um the exchange the um, the stage itself is really interesting. I, I actually reviewed *Wuthering Heights* there, mm-hmm. um, and feel free to read the review. I'm not sure it's entirely complimentary, um, I but that. <laughs> I uh, I yeah the production itself was bizarre, um, and I couldn't work out whether it was actually it being in the round. Um, normally, you know, that's a really you know creme de la creme thing in the arts and theatre is to have a theatre in the round and to do a production in that way. But it, because that is their standard setup for the theatre, it sometimes just feels a bit forced with their productions. Um, yeah, so I have very mixed feelings about productions at the Royal Exchange at the moment.
0: So to get on to our final topic of the podcast, sort of the, sort of our final question we like to ask people, it's uh, what films were from your childhood were meaningful to you?
2: Oh, my gosh. Um... So I was trying to think about this earlier. Um, I actually had to ring my (laughs) mum to (laughs) ask her um, what I used to watch when I was younger because um, it's been kind of so long since I've been able to kind of think back to my childhood in in that way. I mean, I come from a massive film-loving family um, with very eclectic tastes. My parents have very uh, differing tastes. Um, And I was asking... I was asking mum and uh, she was saying that I used to be absolutely obsessed with Beauty and the Beast, the 90s, um, the 90s kind of Disney version. Um, I I apparently would frolic around the living room pretending to be Belle to my heart's content, which, you know, some things don't change. Uh, (laughs) But um, yeah, I have a real comforting relationship, I think, with strong female characters like that from my childhood even Anne of Green Gables, it's a book written by a Canadian author and it's uh, the plot is kind of set around the turn of the 20th century. She's a young um, orphan who's taken in um, by two slightly older um, siblings and um, I always had a real affinity with Anne of Green Gables and even now when I go back, I watch the Gilbert Sullivan TV movies I think there's three of them following Anne's life and I'll watch for kind of six, seven hours Mm -hmm. Anne (laughs) as she grows up and progresses. And I just feel at home and I just feel loved. And I feel like me and Anne would get on, (laughs) (laughs) even though she's not real, obviously. And even if she was, she would be long since dead now. Um, But yeah, so stuff like that, I just, I have a real bond with uh, from my childhood. Um, I'm not sure why. But yeah, I I love I love stuff like that.
1: And yeah, you 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 list there the yeah, Anne Green Gables, of course. And you also said the s- soundtrack to Disney's Cars.
2: Oh my oh. gosh, yeah, I completely forgot about this. So <laughs> I, was I have a little that. brother, yeah, bear with me here. I have a little brother, Alfie. He's now obviously much older and cooler. Um but when he was kind of 6 7 the Cars film came out and I was just a little bit too old to be engaged with it. However, if anybody has ever seen Cars, the first film, um, the soundtrack is all kind of real country music.
1: I've just looked it Um, up. It is. It really is. It's all just
2: proper country music. And Alfie used to have the soundtrack on CD back when CDs were thing. And whenever we went on road trips, Alfie would always want to listen to the Cars soundtrack. And, he loved it because he loved Lining Lightning McQueen. Uh, I loved it because I loved the country music. And even now, I will listen to the car soundtrack just to listen to those great country hits.
1: I mean, the artists, and... just to, j- j- just mm. for reference, so people mm. don't have to look this up, it's Sheryl Crow, <laughs> Chuck Berry, Rascal Flats, Brad Paisley, mm. James Taylor, mm. The Chords, which is a group that I haven't heard of um, where they are, John Mayer... Uh, Hank Williams, and then most of the songs on the soundtrack were written by Randy Newman.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I think this is probably where my early love of music comes from, Here in the Beatles, uh, listening to soundtracks in movies um, that, you know, were country, basically. Um, which is weird, because neither of my parents really listened to country music. So I, I must have picked up my love of the country genre from hearing it on films uh, and particularly cars back in the early noughties when, uh, <laughs> when things were slightly less stressful.
1: <laughs> so, so what other country-infused soundtrack is your favourite?
2: I'm just trying to think. When I was last listening to country music, um, I, I've been watching a lot of trashy movies just out of boredom. <laughs> um kind of based in the South. I always had this fascination with that genre. Um I watched a bit of Nashville, which isn't a film, it's obviously a tv series, um, and absolutely absolutely loved it. Um but I'm I'm not actually I'm not actually sure where I must have picked it up from. I think it must have just been cars because I can't think of any films with such heavily consuming country soundtracks, that I've seen recently. Anyway, um, I think it might just be an era thing. But yeah, I'm, I'm getting a bit out, I'm getting a bit old now, a bit outdated.
0: <laughs> I'm trying to think if I have anything that's sort of any films I watched when I was much younger that the soundtrack influenced me. I think one of the ones for me is when I was probably about ten or eleven. I watched the. Um, it's the American remake of Dinner for Schmucks which is a, hmm. a it's a French film I think originally and it's got Steve Carell and Paul Rudd and the well, the song they use in the opening uh, titles is uh, Fall on the Hill by the Beatles mm-hmm.
2: and it, although as much,
0: as much as I did hear sort of know about the Beatles sort of a fair amount by the time I was about 10 or 11. Mm. I'd never really heard any of the sort of, as you would sort of say, just kind of deep cuts of them, where I've only ever heard like Hey Jude and sort of the ones on like the yeah. greatest hits album. And I think listening to Fall on the Hill and knowing it was the Beatles was one of the things that made me want to like research their music more. And actually, yeah. even now, like the Magical Mystery Tour, which is the album that's on, yeah. it's probably one of my favourite. Uh, Beatles albums even though no one else says that because most people think yeah. it's
2: crap I'll say that is a rare opinion of a Beatles album <laughs> <laughs> but no fair enough yeah no. I'm try to think, The Breakfast Club as well I, I, when I was kind of so obviously I was with my, my youth when I was very young it was all kind of country and then as I moved into my teenage years uh, my mum sat me down and made me watch The Breakfast Club which is obviously that iconic 80s um, 80s kind of coming of age film and from that point onwards, I was obsessed with Simple Minds. I mean, not just Don't You Forget About Me, I could recite the lyrics to just about every Simple Simple Minds track I think has ever been released. And I think that comes from watching that when I was, you know, in my mid-teens or early to mid-teens and just having this affinity with the film and with Simple Minds through it. It's fascinating how you develop those bonds from movies you're watching when you're kind of, developing as a human <laughs> um you know growing up
0: what's your um hottest uh, musical taste inspired by film toby see it's more about a hot take about a film inspired by music okay
1: mm-hmm. um and it's um tron legacy it's one of my favorite films and some people will say, but, but, but the story's terrible. Like, it, it's badly written, and the arcs are predictable, and it's just, the, the dialogue's boring. And I'm like, I know, I know. But if you treat it as a very long Daft Punk music video, <laughs> it
0: works. <laughs> it works.
1: <laughs> so yeah, Tron isn't a movie, it's just a Daft Punk music video. That's my hot take.
0: and i think on that note i think it's probably time for us to sort of wrap up the podcast here so just before we go uh lily is there anything you would like to plug
2: oh is there anything i'd like to plug not especially um check out your local small bands guys because uh they're really struggling at the moment and they're really important movie wise don't really have any wise words (laughs) but as far as music is concerned Check out some small bands at the moment. Um there's loads of great music coming out of Manchester and Yorkshire. So give them a listen because they're great and that they need the support in this uh strange pandemic world we now live in.
0: And also I would encourage people to uh check out uh, Lily's coverage of those bands.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> <I was laughs> oh yeah, on say the <laughs> website, yeah. I'm also on Twitter and Instagram if anyone would like to follow me, but um but I wouldn't really wish on my worst enemy. Um, yeah, no, check out check out your local bands. There's some really good ones, some really good albums coming out at the moment. In fact, one that I've actually had a sneak preview of recently is called Lunatic... Um, oh, it's called, sorry, Fantasies of a Stay-at-Home Psychopath by The Blinders. And they've just released a new track on it. And I am very rarely a positive critic when it comes to bands... But it's actually a brilliant uh, album thus far. So give it a listen because uh, I think it's going to be making waves in this scene in the next couple of months.
0: In in terms of Daft Punk, it may be the soundtrack of the summer.
2: You never know. You never know. It might be on a film in (laughs) the next kind of 15 years, which hopefully, because I hear you can make some good money doing that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) You can find me on Twitter at Josh Sandy and on Instagram and Letterboxd at Josh W Sandy. And all my social media.
1: So if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, that's where I'm what I'm <laughs> on now. Um, yeah, Tobias Sore at Tobias Sore. Uh, anywhere and everywhere, find me on Letterbox, Twitter, Instagram. I'm on it.
0: Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Goodbye. Goodbye, everyone. Goodbye.